Have you ever been face-to-face with the truth in such a way that you just couldn't ignore it? In this episode, you will hear from Jim McCloskey, a lay minister and founder of Centurion, the first nonprofit dedicated to freeing individuals who are wrongly incarcerated. He talks with Sushama Austin Connor about how he met a prisoner who insisted on his innocence and why he decided to take a year off of seminary to work full-time towards this prisoner's freedom. You will not want to miss Jim's astonishing story of faith, justice, and liberation. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Well, Jim, thanks so much for doing this. Um, Princeton Seminary is obviously, for all the reasons, really excited to have this conversation with you, continuing education at, at Princeton Seminary. And me, of course, personally, am just thrilled. And just this is just a joy to be able to speak with you about um, your book and about Centurion Ministries, which means so much to the seminary and to me and to my family. Well, thank you very much, Sue. I, I, I've been looking forward to this ever since we had it scheduled. The seminary, well, the summit, Princeton Theological Seminary has changed my life, and, and I might add the life of many others, because it, uh, it provided me with an opportunity, although I had no idea it was around the corner, uh, of uh, meeting the first person in whose innocence I came to believe, which kicked off and, and, and inspired me. To, to rather than going ordained after I received my MDiv, which I did in 1983, to begin the work of, of Centurion Ministries to help free people who we believe are innocent, wrongly convicted, sentenced to life or death with uh, pretty much no way of getting out except for maybe our effort. Amazing. I wanna, t- I wanna go back a little bit though and start with life maybe right before you decided to enter seminary and going from business to seminary, what a, a huge deal that is, what a life changer that is. What were, what were some of the thoughts that made you pivot from business to uh, seminary life? Well, I was 37 years old, uh, living in the suburbs of Philadelphia and uh, working work, employed by a management consulting firm in Philadelphia called Hay Associates, H-A-Y Associates, and my job was to build its business, its consulting business with Japanese companies in the United States, and to eventually establish us our office in Tokyo, Japan. The reason they hired me to do that was because I had spent the prior five or six years in Tokyo working for a, a Japanese a joint venture consulting firm between American Bank and, and a Japanese bank in aiding American firms interested in entering the Japanese market. So I had that Japan background. So they brought me aboard. Everything was going well. Now we're in the 1970s, from 74 to 79. I'm in well in my 30s. And um, during that time, business was going well. I was making a good, you know, it was a, it was a nice salary position. Um, I'm bringing in Japanese clients. But on, when you get underneath that surface, I was, uh, I was not happy with my personal life, with my conduct in my personal life. I had kind of gone off track. I was kind of like the prodigal son. Um, and um, uh, I was, for the first time in my adult life, I decided, you know, I got to start uh, 
developing some spiritual element to my life because that's that was lacking and it was there was a total void there. So I attended a Paoli Presbyterian Church in in Paoli, Pennsylvania, and uh, the minister there, Dick Streeter, who's a Princeton Theological Seminary grad, I found his preaching compelling because his constant theme was to serve others, to wash the feet of others, mm. particularly the folks who did not have the advantages that we did in the suburbs of, of Philadelphia, the economic and social advantages that we did. And at the same time, you know, I was, I was hungry. I, the scriptures became my meat and drink rather than, and, and at the same time, my business aspirations uh, was, were waning. I was losing interest in the business world. It wasn't, re it, it wasn't real to me. What became real was the truth of, this, of the gospel and the scriptures. That's what was real to me. And over a period of years, slowly but surely, um, I was every Saturday, practically every Saturday night, I, I was in the scriptures, uh, reading the prophets of the Old Testament and, and the Gospels and Paul's letters. And I saw this is the truth of life as I saw then. Not So anyway, uh, I consulted with no one except Dick Streeter. Okay. I didn't consult with my mother or father, although I'm very close to my family. I had a ton of friends because I was thinking about Dick Streeter as a minister was touching the hearts and souls of people in a transformative way, including my own. I was touching nobody's heart and soul. I was touching my own pocketbook and the pocketbook of the company, but that, was, that proved to be very unsatisfactory and unfulfilling. So I felt a call to follow in Dick Streeter's footsteps, go to the seminary, and become an ordained church Presbyterian pastor. So that was what was going on within me, and internally and externally, that led me to go. Now, I was going to go to Eastern Baptist, which would have been easier because it's only about a 20-minute ride from my house. Mm -hmm. Dick said, no, Jim, if you're going to do this, you have to go to Princeton. That's where you're going to get the best education. Um, and so I took his advice, sold my house on the main line, um, and came up to Princeton. One thing I did not sell was, <laughs> was my <laughs> 1976 Lincoln Continental Town Car. Yeah. I, I just couldn't, I couldn't part with that. Part, yeah. So I pulled up to I pulled up to Brown Hall uh, with my Lincoln Continental. People thought I was on the lamb or a fugitive <laughs> or something. But anyway, that's what brought me to the seminary. So, Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so, you know, Jim, I feel like I learned so much about you personally in this book. Yeah, of course. <laughs> all, the, all the good, bad, and the ugly, you learned a lot. I learned so much. There are I had to stop, and then I was reading it aloud to um, my husband Rob, who you know. Right. And so I was reading some parts to him. We were like, "Wow, we have we have so much to cover." But talk to me about this idea of kind of your personal conduct that you mentioned in the book that you you just referred to, and that I've heard you talk about in some other interviews that I listened to as I prepared. What was going on for you? And it wasn't atypical, I don't think, in some ways, to what maybe 20-somethings go through or the kind of risks you may take. 
not even knowingly really, inherently we're a little more risky in our 20s. But talk to me about that personal conduct. What was life like? What were you doing? What were you up to? Well, what I was doing was uh, I was, uh, again, this is in my, well, in my 20s and in my 30s. 30s, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, I was very, let's just say promiscuous. And uh, I had relationships with women uh, mm-hmm. that, that um, I was selfish, self-centered. I used women for my own gratification. Uh, and I came to realize that this was wrong. This was immoral. I was leading an immoral life. And um, that was in contrast to the way I was raised by my mother and father. And um, um, I, I didn't feel good about my, I lost my self-esteem. Who am I? Who am I? What is my real identity? And, um, you know, I had one foot in the secular world and, and one foot in the, in the spiritual world, the church world. And, um, you know, as an example, when I told my boss at Hey Associates, uh, Bill Dinsmore was his name, great, a great human being. I said, Bill, this is a 19, early 79. I said, Bill, I, I need to talk to you about something very serious. He said, okay. So I went into his office and I told him, that I was not only leaving Hay, but I was leaving the business world to go into ministry. His, and I'll never forget this. His first words were, Jim, I didn't even know you went to church. <laughs> so I was two people. I was one person to the secular world and another person to the spiritual church world. And it was time for me to announce to the world who I really was. And that I, I considered myself to be, although deeply flawed, but nevertheless, uh, a, a, a convicted a Christian, That's and uh, it's, it's about time that I, I showed the world who I was. That not I didn't hide that anymore. And once I made that announcement, then it was amazing the reaction I got from my corporate colleagues, yeah. and they were very supportive, surprised, shocked. <laughs> my, my, my as I found out, I'm still very, I'm still very close to my fraternity brothers at Bucknell. Uh, uh, every year, 20 or 25 of us get together uh, with a golf outing up at Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. And a number of them have told me that when I when, when I told them what I was doing, they were afraid that I had gone off the deep end and, and, and had lost, and they were going to lose my friendship, that somehow I was going to change my own personality, yeah. Which, yeah. I, which I didn't do. And my poor mother and father they were, you know, they were supportive, but um, skeptical. Mm-hmm. Jim, you're 37, 38 years old. And, you know, my mother told me, she said, Jim, you're never going to be a church pastor. You're just not cut out to do that. And as it turned out, she was right. But I didn't know that at the time. So she, she knew, she, she knew. knew. But, but getting back to your question, yes, I was, I had descended into what I thought was an immoral life. And I wanted to, uh, I needed redemption as much as anybody else. Mm-hmm. I was part of it. And, and, and I wanted to really touch people's lives in a meaningful, significant, transformative way. And I thought by being a church pastor, I would, that would give me the opportunity to do that. To touch people. Yeah. Yes. But you weren't without religion. So growing up in your childhood, your family is Presbyterian. Yeah. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about your childhood and um, some yes. of the religious upbringing and that, also yeah, yeah. some of your, your, your mother's illness and how, how that manifests in your, yes. your spiritual life and in, in finding redemption and finding hope. 
Right. That's that. Thank you for bringing that up. That's a good. It's a good subject to to talk about a little bit. First of all, when I was in grade school, I wanted to reclaim my boyhood faith because mm-hmm. it was authentic. It was real. I was a stand-up Christian young boy in grade school. That was what was most important to me. And then as soon as I hit junior high, that started going south <laughs> because the most important thing to me at that point was peer pressure. I wanted to be liked and popular and, and I, you know, I let myself drift in that direction. So and another element was in, in deciding to leave the business world and go to mystery, I wanted to reclaim my boyhood faith. Mm-hmm. And that was inculcated into me by my mom and dad, who were very active in the church. That my upbringing was very in the church was very important, and it was the it was the the foundation that ultimately I yearned to uh, to reclaim. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was very that was very important. When I was five years old uh, in 1947, mm-hmm. uh, my mother, who was 30 years old. Um, Went to bed one night in June of 1947, feeling fluish, mm. tired, fever, whatever, body ached. She, uh, Sue, she woke up the next morning and was paralyzed from the waist down. Yeah, it was, it was like the polio virus hit her like a bolt of lightning. And in doing some research about that, that that phenomenon occurred to about 10,000 uh, men and women across the United States. Just so out bang, of nowhere, out of nowhere. Out of nowhere, yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, friends of our family, now in those days, people were afraid that if they even came near our house, they would catch the virus, Mm -hmm. they would walk on the other side of the street. However, only one one good friends of my parents, uh, Kitty and Tom Boyd, who were also the parents of my best friend, Tom Boyd, Mm -hmm. we lived around a corner from each other, and they they offered to take me in so my dad could get, could settle in and, and start to take, find the right resources to take care of mom, who was homebound and paralyzed. Mm-hmm. And they took me in. Now, that was a, that was a, a great thing. That was a, uh, a courageous thing yeah. because they didn't know maybe I'm bringing the polio virus into their home to attack their family. But nevertheless, they went way out on the limb and took me in for six months. Another family took my brother in. So I never forgot that, what, mm-hmm. what the Boyds did for me and what the Steitlers did for my brother. Uh, so that was uh, that was kind of formative as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So you get, so let's go back to Princeton Seminary. So you get to Princeton Seminary. And, you know, I, I was so familiar with some of the places that you mentioned in the, the um, Route 1 and right. – um, library place like actually yep. continuing ed offices are now on library place in adam's house oh yes so i know where you are so it was really right. nice to have like the visual of, right. of where everything is uh, so you get to princeton seminary and it's year two and you're doing field education that's correct and what happens all right the first year my junior year i, I did not do field ed because i just mm-hmm. wanted to focus on the studies in my second year i decided to do uh, my field education uh, as, as a student chaplain at Trenton State Prison. Mm-hmm. Now, why did I do that? Why did I choose that? <laughs> why did you I do that? I don't really know why I chose that other than I've always had an adventuresome spirit mm-hmm. and I've never been in a prison before. Who are these people? What are they like? 
Um, I, think I mean, I, were there options, Jim? Like, were you? Yeah, oh, yeah, I could have. Sure, I could have yeah. been a. I could have been a, a youth pastor. Youth pastor, I, yeah. I, I didn't want any of that. Um, <laughs> I could have uh, been assigned to a church as a as a student. Um, sure. Yeah. You know, student intern at, at a church, uh, a hospital. I, there was all kinds of options available, but I chose Trenton State Prison. Joe Ravenel, uh, the 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 chaplain at Trenton State Prison, also a a Princeton Seminary grad had set up a program between the seminary field education department and the prison administration. Every year they would bring in six or seven Princeton Seminary students to be student chaplains for the full school year. So that's, that's what I decided to do. Um, and then uh, Joe Ravenel, um, he assigned me to what they call the Varum Readjustment Unit, <laughs> which is a, which is a real euphemistic term for the maximum security people in, who are sent to the Varum uh, Readjustment Unit. Uh, they had been in trouble in whatever state prisons in New Jersey they had come from, so they put the bad the bad boys in that prison for however long a punishment they were to serve, and that's where I was assigned. And the reason Joe. I said, Joe, why did you send me there? Yeah. To this day, I'm good friends with him. I, I, he said, I'll tell you why I sent you there, because you were cocky, and I wanted to bring you down a couple of notches, one or two. And I said, well, you did a good job there, Joe. Uh, but but anyway, to the room building, I went. for the, Now we're talking about September of 1980, which was the beginning of my middler year at the seminary. And, yeah. And, yeah. So. yeah. And then you... You go there with another seminarian, and you yes. guys are... Yeah, there, um, there, were, there were two of us, uh, Joseph yep. Checa, who was a friend of mine, who also lived in Brown Hall. He, he, Joe assigned him to two cell blocks and assigned me to two cell blocks. And so we would go there together. We would drive down in my very comfortable, plush Lincoln Continental Town car. <laughs> Which, by the way, I got about seven miles per gallon out of that, <laughs> out of that, out of that boat. <laughs> but the first day we went down there in September of 1980, I'm 37, 38. I've been in Vietnam. I've been all over the world. And Joseph was 28. He'd been, uh, he's had some secular experience, but we were both scared to yeah, death. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, they tell you. They tell story. They're myth. This myth that don't stay, don't get too close to their cell. They're, they're locked in their cell, and we go down a cell block from cell to cell. We're wearing the collar. I look like an Irish Catholic priest, <laughs> and uh, you just go cell to cell. You just want to make friends, and you know they don't get any visitors oh, by yeah. and large. And be. And are friend. you wearing a collar because they like? Princeton suggested it, or you just decided to, or Joe, Joe Ravenel. It was part of it was part okay. of the uniform, if you will. Ah, good. Joe Ravenel wanted us to to wear as being student chaplains. Got it. We pulled up to the parking lot of the prison, and you know, a fence with all the concertina wire, and it was such an intimidating, forbidding uh, building. I said to Joseph, "Let's have a word of prayer." <laughs> so, so we held hands. Yes. We asked God to give us a, a spirit of calmness and uh, courage, and uh, that didn't happen. <laughs> that was an unfulfilled prayer. Anyway, we walked in there, and that began my 
my student chaplaincy at Trent State Prison and encountering uh, a life-changing uh, uh, a life-changing event where I met the, one of the 40 men on the two cell blocks I was assigned was a man by the name of Jorge de los Santos. And um, he was, uh, so I'd go, you know, cell to cell. Yeah. And um, uh, he was gregarious. He was friendly. He put me at ease. Um, he was very open hearted. He talked about mm -hmm. himself and everything that he had done in the past, which was not murder. He was in prison for a Newark, New Jersey murder. Mm -hmm. uh, he was convicted of um, an attempted robbery, which ended up to be a fatal shooting of, of the proprietor of a used car line in, in Newark. And he was the only one, by the way, who was proclaiming his innocence. I mean, I'm wondering, too, like before you even hear his story, is he standing out because of that openness? And that how how why is he standing out more than the rest of the guys on that floor? Right. Or was but, it once you heard the story? Yeah, no, that's that's good. Good point. There was something about it. We just clicked. Yeah. Yeah. Our personalities just clicked because he was an engaging personality. He was friendly, open, funny, um, but uh, he would also speak from his heart. He was married to Elena, uh, a, a Native American a Cherokee. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, he from day one, he said, he said, Jim, you know, they, they called me Jim. And I, he said, uh, I, I'm, I didn't do what I'm here for. Mm -hmm. I'm an innocent man. So that got my attention, but I also at the same time, I didn't like, believe it. Okay. You know, I was, I was under the, oh, they all say they're innocent. Well, first of all, that's a canard. They don't all say they're innocent. He was the only one of the 40 who did say he was innocent. So, um, but anyway, to answer your question, he was just a, a gregarious, very human, just the opposite of what I imagine a hardened murder Person. convict would, would look like or be like. He's in his cell. I'm outside, standing in front of his cell. Cell bars. I can see him perfectly. Standing in his shorts with his thongs on, with long brown hair down to his shoulders. And Elena uh, was tattooed on his heart, the name of his wife. And I'm standing there in my priestly garb. And, uh, you know, we just, uh, he, I, I, I had to be careful because I couldn't spend too much time with him because that would create some problems with other inmates who, you know, and by the way, my reception there was, was uh, surprisingly uh, friendly. Uh, most of the inmates in their cells were, they wanted somebody to talk to. Of course. Of and and they, wanted, they wanted a friend. They wanted somebody who didn't judge them or in any way uh, be critical of them just to basically listen. Mm-hmm. They, 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 there was a lot they they all wanted to say because nobody nobody would no nobody would listen to them. That's right. So that, That's that right. was not it was not hard for me to feel comfortable every day I went there, and nor to establish some relationships and rapport with most of the inmates. So in those first meetings, Chiefy is sort of pushing you and challenging you and telling you his story. I, and you're getting, I, I hear you say, well, I didn't believe him, of course, because who would believe him? But what changes you or changes your mind in how he is sharing the stories? He's saying, you know what, actually, no, I'm actually innocent. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, first of all, he wasn't pushing me. 
-hmm. but he was, that's all he wanted. He only wanted to talk about two things. I didn't. His innocence innocence. and his wife, Elena. Oh, yeah. And uh, he spent a lot of time. I mean, he, I used to have chills right now because Mm -hmm. he loved her and Mm -hmm. she was completely devoted to him. She was a, uh, a hair salon person mm-hmm. up in up in Newark. She had three kids by a prior relationship that she was, uh, you know, raising. Uh, but and she would visit him twice a week uh, for limited visits. She was an incredible woman who I got to know and, and really uh, have a nice relationship with a good friend. Uh, but anyway, up until hitting up the, the cell block, I never had any involvement with the criminal justice system whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I wasn't. I was never asked to be on the jury. I've never been in a courthouse before. I knew absolutely nothing. So I was bringing with me uh, what turned out to be a complete ignorance and naivete about our criminal justice system in that I thought police and prosecutors were very honorable men and women who, who, who were serving the community. It was a great noble service of catching criminals and putting them away. Right. <laughs> and, and, and surely they would never suborn perjury or lie themselves. Or, and then they, were, they wanted to catch the real people who did this, not innocent people. And the same with the judges. I, I held those positions, police, prosecutors, judges, in the highest esteem from my suburban mainline perch. Yep. And um, uh, as far as I was concerned, they were there to protect and serve, mm-hmm. at least my white community in the suburbs. Yep. So, so um, anyway, I found it very hard to believe two things. Number one, that he was innocent. Number two, not only was he saying he was innocent, he was saying that Newark, the Essex County Prosecutor's Office in Newark framed him. Right. No, he framed him. Right. Right. I said, I said, wait a minute, Chief. Are you telling me that the prosecutor himself uh, knew that his witnesses were lying and he brought them in just to get a conviction? He said, that's exactly what I'm telling you. I said, why would they care about you? He was a heroin addict and mm-hmm. he, had, he had a number of drug related arrests. Um, never spent any time in prison, but he was in and out of the local jails for drugs. And he was a he was a full blown addict, uh, off and on uh, over those. You know, he was he was uh, twenty eight years old when he got uh, convicted for this crime. I said, yeah, I said, Chippy, why should they even believe? Why should they be concerned? Right. Why would anybody want to frame you? You are you. You right. a throwaway. He said, that's why. He said because I was an easy prey. I was an easy target for the police to arrest and make them look good in clearing a murder. Mm-hmm. And for the prosecutors to get a conviction, to make their their trial record good. Slowly but surely, over the next couple of months, we would talk about this, and 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 we 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 became close. I mean, I I couldn't wait to get down there yeah. to talk to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, secretly, I didn't tell Joe Rapinoe or anyone else. <laughs> we gave him permission to call me. Okay. Yeah, 72 library place. Thanksgiving comes. And I said, look, Chiefy, I've heard your story time immemorial. You've gone over, we've gone over it many times. I need your trial. I want to read your trial transcripts. And by the way, 
we were told by both the administration and Joe Rabinell, don't get involved yes, right. in personal or their casework. That's a no-no. If you do, you're out of here. Mm-hmm. You'll be banned from the prison. So, um, but I was so provoked by the possibility that, that he might be what he's saying he is. I said, Chief, there are two sides to every story. I want to get, so I got hold of his trial. I, I got hold of his trial transcripts. That took some work, but I got hold of them. Mm-hmm. And I took them home over Thanksgiving of 1980. That's all I did during the Thanksgiving holiday was read 2,000 pages of transcripts. I was I was obsessed with them. Yes. Totally into this. And so I learned that whatever all the details he gave me were borne out by the trial transcripts. So mm-hmm. it came to to really provoke me into saying, I'm taking it to another level, maybe this guy is innocent. All right. So come back from Thanksgiving. He knows I've read the trial transcripts. He's nervous as a cat when I approach his cell. Yes. He said, what do you think? I said, well, Chiefy, you know, you know, it backs up everything you've been telling mm-hmm. me over the prior couple of months. He said, well, let me ask you. He said, Jim, I've answered a million of your questions over the, over the last couple of months. I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't. I said, oh, boy. What's, <laughs> happening, now? what's happening now? Yes. He said, do you believe I'm innocent? Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, I, I, I do believe you. I don't know you're innocent, but I do believe I believe you, Chiefy. I, I said, I don't know if I believe that the prosecutors frame you, but I do believe you're innocent. Then he said to me, and it took me completely aback. He said, well, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. I, said, I said, what do you mean, what am I going to do about it? I'm a, I don't know anything about criminal justice <laughs> or murders or courts of law, investigation. Oh, I'm a former businessman. I'm now at the seminary studying church history and scriptures and becoming and, a minister. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he said, I've been I've been on my knees for the last seven years mm-hmm. praying to God to bring somebody to me to help free me. And whether you know it or not, and whether you like it or not, you're that man. Mm-hmm. God has sent you to my cell to liberate me, to bring me home to Elena. I'm asking God work. He said, what are you going to do? Go back to your seminary and in that nice, secure little environment and pray for me. That's not going to get me out. God works through human hands and it's your hands that I believe God has assigned to get me out of here, to free me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I said, well, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me think about that, Chiefy. But it stunned me. Yeah, it's, huh? stunning. it's a stunning ask. Or, or yes, it was a real but, challenge. Yes. He was, he was challenging my faith. Yes, that's what I'm thinking, right? You, you, you claim to be a man of God. Well, what are you going to do? Leave an innocent man behind and just go about your business like I don't even exist anymore? Right. I mean, it was it really got me. Were it not for that challenge, Sue, I I don't think I would have uh, uh, worked for him. No. He, 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 he made me. He compelled me. So I go back to the seminary. And I'm praying. And again, I'm consulting with nobody because nobody's going to believe this. <laughs> and so, but I go to the scriptures and I open them up to the to the, the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah is talking about how people go to law and they lie. 
and there is no justice. Truth has fallen from the public squares. The Lord wondered why there was no one to intervene, to bring about justice, to find the truth. And it bothered the Lord. And so I saw that, and I'm saying, is this a sign that I'm, I'm to intervene on behalf of Chiefy? And I felt that it was. And so that was a turning point that, in addition to his challenge and sure. factors, I said, you know, I think I'm going to take a year off and work on his behalf. I believe he's innocent. And that's mm -hmm. what I did. That's what I that's did. That's what you did. At that point, um, you have you're founding Centurion at this point. No, no, I'm not founding Centurion. All okay. I'm doing, taking a year off from school. Okay. I had completed three of the six semesters for a right. divinity. Now we're in February of 1981. Okay. And I decided to take a year off independent leave from mm -hmm. the seminary and work full time to see On if I case. could free him. I could move the ball forward. And um, um, now, you know, you're a parent. Imagine now a year and a half before this, I told my mom and dad I was going to leave the business when I go in the ministry. And now here I am a year and a half later. Now, can you imagine if your eldest son, if your eldest son came to you and said, uh, Sue and Rob, uh, I've decided to take a year off from school. Um, and I'm going to, I believe that a former Newark heroin addict is innocent of murder. And I'm going to investigate the case and try and free him. Well, that was very, very unsettling to my parents. To say the least. Yeah, yes. right. I, I don't know what I would have said. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what my mother said. What did my she mother, say? My mother said, Jimmy, this is going to be Vietnam all over again. I could never sleep for that year you were Right, over. right, right. And now you're going to go investigate a murder which you know nothing about in a city, Newark, which you know you've never been there before, for God's sake. What do you know about it? And I'm going to worry about you every single night. Now, I had not thought of that. I didn't put myself in my mother. No, of course, you know, but it's natural. Yeah. The reaction's natural. But I said, mother, I completely understand, but I, I got to do it. I just have to do it. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, they supported me, uh, but they were obviously very concerned for my safety. Of course. Yeah. Of course. So then uh, then I, I announced to uh, uh, Jim McCord, the, when you take an yeah, independent leave, when yeah. you take an independent leave of absence, you get an exit interview to the president of the seminary. And at that time, it was Jim That's McCord. That's so intimidating. And I actually, I looked up the dates just to see who the president was at that time. And I was like, yeah. how intimidating is that? <laughs> go see Jim McCord. Did, did you know him at all? Or have you ever had any encounters with him? I just know of him. And that's yeah, right. Well, he had this, he had this deep voice. It was, it was like God was talking down to you, you know? So, so I'm ushered into his, into his uh, office for this exit interview. And uh, uh, Jim, uh, what church are you going to, where are you going to, what church are you going to serve? You're off. So then I explained to him what I was doing. Now, what I didn't know, so he had a button at his desk. He would press that button and that was his secretary signal to come in and get this person out of there. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> no sooner do I tell him what I'm going to do that I'm ushered out of his office and he sends me over to Dean Moss's office. And I told him the same thing. And they both want to know, are you sure what you're doing is legal? Is that legal, Jim? 
Right, right. I said, yes, Lego. I mean, you know, nothing no Lego about. But anyway, that, that was that was my exit. And then I moved in uh, because when you have a leave of absence, you can't live in the seminary. The dorms, right. Mm -hmm. In the dorms. So I moved out of Brown Hall and then found a place uh, to live on 72 Library Place. So cool. Yeah. It was, it was a home owned and occupied by a lovely, delightful octogenarian, Mrs. Yateman. And in exchange for me doing errands for her, uh, I had a second floor bedroom free of cost, which turned out to be the first headquarters for Centurion Ministers. Wow. My bedroom wow. in that home. In that home on Library Place. On yeah. 72 Library Place. Yeah. 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 When you turn when you turn onto Library Place, it's the first house fully facing Library Place, seventy two. It's a white I, Victorian home. Yep, yeah. I think I, yeah, I know the street. I passed yeah. by. Well, right. pre COVID, I passed by all the time. Yeah. 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 So, fit, talk, finish your thought and talk about the end of Chiefy's case, and then I want to get to some of um, your work when Centurion's kind of up and running. Right, right, right. Well, so I took that year off and, and, and ended up doing several things. I, I became the investigator. Mm -hmm. And so I do, did two things. One is, well, three things. One is to investigate the case. I would Like yourself, like you were Myself. Yeah, Myself. Right. that's what yeah. Ryan. Want that to yeah. be clear because I was so impressed with your, your true crime investigative skills. <laughs> well, you know, it just, uh, you know, I always, you know, all it is is common sense, and, yeah. and, and you know, you what you know, you just knock on people's doors, and you you try to get them. To, one thing leads to another, and you know, I, 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 my main purpose, one of the main things was there were two. Chiefy was convicted based on two prosecution witnesses. Yes, one of them was Pat Puccillo, who claimed that um, that when he was driving his tow truck by the the used car lot, he heard shots. And he saw Chiefy and another man he identified as Lamont Harvey, nicknamed Grasshopper, flee the flee the, the, the used car lot. So he's an eyewitness that claimed to see Chiefy and this other man flee. This, so they arrest Chiefy based on that eyewitness account. Mm -hmm. Then now he's in the Essex County Jail awaiting trial based on that one eyewitness account. And what the police did, which I was able to, to prove to the satisfaction of a federal judge, they placed a career criminal, Richard Delasante, on that tier to enable Richard Delasante to talk with Chiefy and come into the court to his trial and say that Chiefy confessed the crime to him. Mm -hmm. It's called a jailhouse confession. So those two, those were the two uh, witnesses against him. There was a lot of work to do in terms of investigation, and I finally uh, met up with Richard Delasante, and about a year after my I started this work, uh, and uh, he 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 uh, he was in the Hudson County Jail at the time, and uh, I visited with him for two days straight, and by that time, he had agreed to talk to me and tell me the whole story. Mm -hmm. He was a lifelong informant for the Essex County Prosecutor's Office. He testified at trial that he's never testified in any other situation against anybody. He did this because... What Chiefy did was a bad thing, and he thought he should come forward. When in fact, he had he had testified in numerous other cases, both before the Chiefy de los Santos trial and after. He was a professional snitch. Yes, and yeah. the payment for all his different testimonies by the prosecutor was he never went to prison. Mm -hmm. They would excuse 
his crimes. So he was free to be out there to be a thief and an arsonist and all this, that, you know, he did all sorts of crimes. Mm -hmm. uh, but he would do the bidding of the prosecutor, particularly this one uh, detective in the prosecutor's office, Ronnie Donahue. He would, Donahue was his handler. Yep. And it was Donahue who put him on the, on the tier with Chiefy and told him what to do. And uh, he would do it. But he got tired of being their pawn. He just got tired of them using him for 10 years of doing this work. Um, and so also he had testified in the same manner, Joe House confession, against his first cousin, Danny Delasante. He yeah. put Danny away yeah. for another I, murder. Which his is, first cousin. His cousin, which is such a crazy, there's so many characters. Yeah. And 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 Dan, I got to know the Delasante family. Uh, Dottie Delasante, Danny's mother. And uh, his aunt, Richard Delasante. Anyway, she kept asking Richard, please talk to this Jim McCluskey. You got to talk to him. If you help him out with Chiefy, maybe that'll help free my son, your mm -hmm. first cousin, Danny Delasante. He resisted for a year and he finally agreed to talk to me. And then he told me the whole story. Mm. And, and so um, he led us to other cases where he had, in fact, testified and helped the police prior to Chiefy's case. And um, and then we got a, we got an evidentiary here. And Pat Pasillo, I met him. And, uh, you know, one of the things that the trial prosecutor, Kevin Kelly, told the jury was, ladies and gentlemen, in a summation, ladies and gentlemen, you heard Pat Pasillo, eyewitness account. You heard Richard Delasante. These two men, they didn't know each other. That they independently, they come forward and they give this incriminating evidence against Mr. De Los Santos. Which they're, they're, they're very credible. There's no yeah. reason to think that they're lying. When, in fact, my investigation, I discovered and got the documentation to prove it, Richard Delasante and Pat Pasilla went to grade school together. Mm -hmm. They were fast friends. They were both drug addicts who would shoot up together. You know, so we were able to establish that. So we have an evidentiary hearing in federal court in March of 1983. Now, in February of 82, I finished my one-year leave of yep. absence. I returned to the seminary to finish my Master of Divinity degree. And I found a great lawyer to work for with me. Yes. On of Chiefy, Paul Castellero. He was instrumental in in freeing Chiefy with me. Um, and Paul, leading up to the evidentiary hearing in, in March of 83, the judge, the federal judge gave, gave Paul authority to go into the prosecutor's files wow. and see what information is wow. in those files that might be exculpatory or go towards uh, this a bad conviction. And Paul discovered in Kevin Kelly's own handwriting in the file, He's the trial prosecutor that he said Richard Delasante in habit of giving testimony. So he knew he knew, he knew yes. that, he, that yes. he had given that testimony in prior prior instances, and he had him do it anyhow. Mm -hmm. Yet he had, under direct examination, Delasante under Kevin Kelly's direct examination testified that uh, he's never done this before. Kelly knew he was lying. He wanted to present him as a you know, it's just a concerned citizen, even though mm -hmm. he was in county jail. And uh, uh, I talked with Kevin Kelly on two different occasions. Um, and uh, on the second occasion, when I told him, hey, Kevin, 
I still think in my naivete when I'm working for Chief Pete, if I can convince Kevin Kelly that through no fault of his own that uh, he convicted an innocent man, maybe he can help me free the man he convicted. That was my uh, yeah. idealistic naivete. Well, when I told him what I had, I met him one time, then a year later I met him another time. I, I telephoned him, and he uh, he got very, very angry with me and said, Jim, I don't care if 10 people confess that uh, that they did this crime and not Chiefy. He's guilty, and he hung up on me. Uh, but uh, at the evidentiary hearing, Paul Castellero really um, unmasked him for his yeah, subordination. Who he is. Yeah. And the judge found that as a fact in his in his opinion, which uh, ended up uh, freeing and exonerating Chiefy in in, in, uh, in, in uh, July of 1983. So by July of 1983, Chiefy was free and exonerated. I had finished my MDiv degree. and But by that time, I had met two or actually three other New Jersey inmates who Chiefy introduced me to, by the way. Yeah, yeah. In whose innocence I had come to believe. So now I have a choice. Do I get do I go on and get ordained as a church pastor? Or do I set up an or, a nonprofit organization, which I ultimately call Centurion Ministries, to work to free innocent people in prison? Obviously, I chose the latter and set up Centurion. So from the beginning, you take on these two cases and talk more about like the trajectory for Centurion. First of all, I named it Centurion. After this, ensuring at the foot of the cross in the Gospel of Luke, who looked up in, in chapter 23, verse 47, and said, surely this one was innocent, looking up the crucified Christ. That's where the name comes from. Mm -hmm. So, but anyway, um, yeah, so I set up, and I'm still working out of Mrs. Yeatman's house. And um, long story short, of the three people whose cases I took on after Chiefy was freed, um, by 19... By November of 86, I was able to free two of those three people. Wow. The third one I freed two years later, 1989. But the seminal case that really put Centurion and me on mm -hmm. the map, on the map, was Paul Castellero, again, and I. He's a solo practitioner out of Hoboken. Um, he and I worked for Nate Walker. Nate was, was convicted and given life plus 50 years for an Elizabeth, New Jersey, uh, sexual assault and kidnapping. <laughs> and Paul and I together met with the Union County in Elizabeth, New Jersey. We met with a, a senior prosecutor there, and we had several discussions, some of them pretty intense, because by this time, 11 years after Nate was convicted in 75, uh, this is now... 86, 1986, um, we provoked th that senior prosecutor in that office. I, we said, look, 11 years ago, when, when the victim was assaulted in this manner, a, she, a rape kit was taken from her, and there's a vaginal swab taken from her as part of the rape kit. Mm -hmm. If semen is on that swab, if you can find that swab, now this is before DNA now. Right. Yeah, I remember. If you can, find swab, can you send that to a lab to see if they can determine the blood type of the semen on that swab? 
Mm-hmm. And he agreed to do that. Richard Rodbart was his name. Richard Rodbart, 11 years earlier, was the prosecutor who put Nate Walker away. Mm-hmm. Now he's a senior executive in that office. And I give him full credit. Mm-hmm. He found that swab and he sent it down the FBI crime lab. And they came back and said, the donor of this semen on that swab has blood type B. Mm. Nate Walker and the victim have blood type A because some of her vaginal fluids might have got mixed up there. So it completely exonerated Nate Walker. Wow. And we freed wow. him. We we freed him in November, early November of, of 86. And um, I'm still working alone out of Mrs. Yateman's house. This got our, this got us a lot of publicity nationwide. Yeah, right. Because at that time, very few, I mean, people this was unheard of, exonerating yeah. innocent. No, because it's pretty what many people may know of. Exactly. Of the innocence movements and the innocence yeah. projects. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, next thing I know, Nate Walker and I are on the Today Show with Brian Gumble. Yeah. And um, this was obviously seen nationwide. Now, letters are pouring in from all over, from state prisons all over the United States because nobody else was doing this at the time. Right, right. Uh, and uh, asking me, Centurion, to help free them like you did Mr. Walker. Mm-hmm. And uh, not only that, but and also Kate Germont, who is still mm-hmm. was my lifelong partner at Centurion. She had just moved to New York with her husband, and she read about the Nate Walker exoneration in New York Times. She saw a photo of me in my bedroom with transcripts <laughs> spilling all over the place, right. and she said, "This man needs help. <laughs> he needs some help." Right. And besides that, she had always fancied herself as an investigator. Mm. She, as as we were in our generation, we were raised on Perry Mason. She idolized Paul Drake, uh, the investigator for Perry Mason, not Perry Mason himself. So anyway, she contacted me and here we are some 30 years later, still working together. Yeah. Um, so it's amazing. And it's amazing how you've kept so many people over the years to working with you and the oh, passion yes. and the vocational pull to this work for yep. people who are around you as well is incredible. Absolutely. We, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in the movie, the field of dreams, it said, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. Well, so many good, talented, dedicated, justice seeking people, volunteers, staff members, you know, Centurion now, um, let's see, Kate joined me in January of 87, 13 plus, plus so some 33, 34 years later, we have a staff of 14 paid employees, mm. lawyers, investigators, case development people. We get, we get over 1,200 letters a year mm-hmm. from people asking us to, to serve on their, to work on their cases. Now, not all of them are innocent. Of course, the vetting process is, is a, is a real large undertaking mm-hmm. uh, but anyway yes so so many and not only that mm-hmm. but you know we've gone national and yeah. have been ever since nate walker was freed um people who saw nate and me on the today show one of them uh, contacted me uh, ozell brandley his brother clarence was on texas death row 
was going to be executed three months later. And that got the attention of Kate and me. And we decided we got the, the record and transcripts and all that. So we got to do something here. I've never been to Texas, mm-hmm. never worked a death row case. We just went where the current took us. And the current took us to Texas and then many other states after that. How many exonerees are there? What's yeah, we, happened to some we, of those folks? Right. We have taken, since I started this work mm-hmm. um, in 1981, early 81, really, um, we have freed uh, 65 people. And collectively, we only take cases where somebody has been given a life or death sentence for either a murder and or sexual assault. Mm-hmm. They're the only cases we take on, the mm-hmm. most serious cases. Well, we have taken a total of 100 cases on since the beginning. 65 are free. Mm-hmm. Collectively, those 65 people have spent um, 1,388 years falsely combined. Wow. Um, we are currently working for 20, so we have finished We have finished 79 cases. 65 have been freed, mm-hmm. and the other 14 or so, or 15, have not. We, we did not free them. Mm-hmm. Six of those 15 or so, we determined that our original assessment of innocence, after we had fully vetted the case and began our investigation, we made a mistake. We, we came to believe they were innocent. They were guilty. They were guilty. They were yeah. guilty. Yes. So we, we dropped them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, several died in prison before we were able to complete our work on their behalf. And then five, although we still believe in innocence, we had to leave them behind because we were not able to develop enough new evidence or find a good legal basis to, to go back to court with. Two were executed, one in Louisiana, one in Virginia. So, um, but 60 of the 79 cases we've com- concluded, uh, 65 were free. That's about a little over 80%. Mm-hmm. Now, the other 21 cases were still working. Centurion is still working. Still working. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, of the 65 that we have freed, 41 are African American, 20 are white, and four Hispanics, mm-hmm. including Chiefy. Of the 21 we're currently working for, 19 are African-American. Mm-hmm. And one is a Native American out of, out of uh, Minneapolis. Yeah, and that actually takes me straight to what has this taught you about the justice system where race is concerned? Well, in, in my view, of 40 years of work, mm-hmm. in 100 cases, yep. in addition to thousands of pleas for help yep. all over this country, there is no question in my mind that the racial bias and prejudice on the part of juries, police, prosecutors, accounts, or is one important reason for African-Americans in particular to bear the brunt of being falsely accused and wrongly convicted. You know, you, you take as an example, several examples I'd like to point out in that regard. Please. Um, since 1989, the uh, National Exoneration Research Center, they, they document all the exonerations that have taken place in America since 1989. 1,065 mostly men 
have been exonerated. In other words, they got convicted of murder, sent away to life or death, and later were exonerated, just like we exonerated Chief De Los Santos. 50% of those exonerees are African-American. Right. Mm-hmm. Same thing with sexual assaults. 360-some men have been exonerated from life sentences for sexual assault, 60% African-American. So people of color bear the brunt of this because, you know, I believe that there is a, a strong undercurrent, implicit, explicit, both of racial prejudice that, that you know, first of all, these folks have no resources. They're mm-hmm. poor. They have no way to defend themselves. Um, there's a pre, when, it, when if you're a person of color sitting in that dock, and you have an all white jury or a mostly white jury, the presumption of guilt is going to be there, and and that's going to be a very difficult invisible barrier to mm-hmm. overcome from the outset. As, as far as death row, 170 men and a few women have been exonerated off of death row. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. 50% of them are African. So it goes on and on. You take New York City, the stop and frisk policy. Yep. For 18 years, it was legal for police officers throughout New York City to stop people on the street and frisk them. They did that to 5 million people over 18 years. Mm-hmm. 90% of those who were stopped and frisked were brown or black people. That's incredible. I mean, you know, so it's, it's there. And, 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 oh, sorry, that's not even a talk to mention all these fatal shootings of innocent black citizens by white police officers all over the country. I mean, my view, and I, I include myself um, in this, we, the Caucasian folks like myself, there's still a segregation between yeah. African-American people and their social environment. I'm talking about regular law-abiding people where, you know, mm-hmm. regardless of the socioeconomic status and white people, we don't, we don't intermingle as very much. No, no. And because of that, and I, you know, I, I think we're, we whites are raised, are programmed we're raised with this erroneous assumptions of fears and expect we categorize people of a different race in a way that's wrong and unfair. We falsely profile them. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's any question uh, given what I've just tried to explain that law enforcement people have within them both explicitly and implicitly, this racial bias that triggers them to come down on the black population much more than the Mm -hmm. white population. There is systemic racism across America that always has been, you know, for 400 years. And there, there might be a greater awareness now because of these fatal uncalled for murders. And video and, and evidence. Yeah. yeah. But now, if there weren't for the videos, nothing would have happened. What would have happened. And I think, yeah. you know, earlier, and, and you've touched on it a couple of times, I think what, 
is always startling to me, and it was an important part of your book too, is the presumption that white folks, good white folks, and other white folks have that the system's fair. That it's like just fair, and that all is fair, and that you must have done something. Right. You must have done something. I think it's that it's changing those hearts and minds that is so difficult. Like, no, the system's actually not fair. Let's let's start there as the baseline. Well, we have two different perceptions of the criminal justice system, right? Based right. on our own human right. experience. That's right. We and I'm generalizing, but it's true. We whites have not been abused generally by law enforcement. They're they're out there to protect and serve. Mm-hmm. And we whites have no idea what's going on in communities of color with the interaction and the interfacing between police and the communities of color. We have no idea about that. And, you know, another thing is, another thing is, and I, in my work, Sue, mm-hmm. the last 40 years, I bet I've been in a thousand black homes. Mm-hmm. And, Every major city in the United States, I don't care where it is, South L.A., South Dallas, Harlem, North, I've been Newark, and I know from my conversations with African-Americans in their homes that um, what goes on and the heavy hand of the police that they've all experienced. And you can even be of a higher socioeconomic status and you know, I know of no white family, and I know a lot of white families in my world. Right. Nobody, not one that I'm aware of, have their parents ever sat their kids down and said, if you get stopped by the police, here's how you must conduct yourself. Otherwise, you're going to be in danger. Right. Now, I was watching a Major League Baseball uh, racial race seminar by black baseball players mm. not too long ago. And one of them pointed out that um, when white people get stopped by a police officer for a, a motor vehicle violation versus black people getting stopped, we have two different objectives. The white person is going to be very nice and polite to prevent from getting a ticket. <laughs> the black person is going to be very nice and polite yes. to save their lives. To save their lives. To save their lives. And that is... I don't have to tell you, uh, but, you know, that's a conscious thing that African-American families have to contend with, regardless of their station in life. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we have no idea. We don't know. We're ignorant about that. I'm talking about whites. Um, so, you know, I've had the good fortune. I'm no expert. I don't claim to be an expert, but I do have more experience in this field and this interaction with, between communities of color and myself than most of my white friends do, and they just don't get it. They don't know. They're ignorant. They don't, They're ignorant. They don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. Get yeah. It. It's an important point. Jim, one final question. We our audience is gonna want to know what what can we do? What can we as clergy and faith leaders and people interested in you and your work and in Centurion and in freeing people who deserve to be freed. What can we do for Centurion and what can we do to learn more about this um, justice system that is so different for so many of us? Well, well, first of all, uh, I read the Philadelphia Inquirer every day. 
that's where I'm from. That's my home. Mm-hmm. It's your home paper. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, if you, it's just, you know, Philadelphia is a war zone. Um, <laughs> yes. There's the, the, the violence down there and, and fatal scary. shootings. And I mean, it, it's just, uh, it's out of control. But what I'm trying to say is read the newspapers with an open mind. Mm-hmm. Understand what's going on in your local community. Um, one example could be yeah, that, one, one example could be there have been a number of progressive men and women who have been elected district attorneys. As an example, in Baltimore, in Chicago, in St. Louis, in Boston, in Orlando, there are a number of wi- black women who have been elected, who have been black women have been elected as prosecutor, county prosecutors. Mm-hmm. And um, what have they done? There are, and, and it is a that's a tough job. Mm-hmm. If you're black and you're a woman, and the police, the white police unions, and the white police entrenched, yes, you know, you have your hands full because they resist you with all their might. And, and abase you and all that. They're having a lot of problems. I'm, I'm thinking particularly of the Kim Gardner out in St. Louis. Who, mm-hmm. um, boy, she's, she's going through going hell through yeah. dealing, dealing, with the, dealing with the police unions there. And even Larry Krasner down in Philadelphia, uh, a, a white male, he, he's, having a, a, he's a progressive, reform-minded mm-hmm. prosecutor. But what's going on there in those offices and in other offices around the country They've recognized that this wrongful conviction, this is a this is a phenomena that is far wider and deeper than we ever our, our criminal justice system is flawed and to a far greater extent than we ever imagined. So even district attorneys are setting up what they call conviction integrity units yeah. to review a, a separate unit within the office to review former convictions where an innocent person may have been convicted. I mean, and Larry Krasner down in Philadelphia, he said when he took office three and a half years ago, he um, he set up a conviction integrity unit, and they have freed and exonerated seventeen men in, who have been wrongly convicted of Philadelphia murders. Mm-hmm. And I might add, sixteen of the seventeen are African American. Mm-hmm. It happens that way. But what people can do, you know, who am I to tell people how to vote? But you know, <laughs> voting is so important. And if you have a choice between a progressive-minded candidate for the local district attorney and a, an entrenched, tough-on-crime, old-school person, look at that very carefully. If you want justice and you want change, then you got to go with a progressive person. Yeah. Um, yeah, you just have to. You do. Yeah. Lives are at stake. Lives are at stake. And... Um, it's so important who we, the electorate, put in authority in the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. So key. that's one thing. Now, as far as Centurion, you know, look, um, when this pandemic uh, go, is past us, uh, one, one way that they can, we, we de- I'll just flat out say it, we, we depend on financial yes. benefactions from the public. If you think uh, that you want to explore the possibility of, of, uh, giving financial support to us, just go on our, you know, just Google Centurion Ministries and, and find out all about us. Go to our website and and then you make your determination if you think this is something that deserves your 
support. And as far as volunteers go, uh, I don't think we're, we're not taking any more volunteers at this time because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But when that ceases, if you're a local person, local being in the Princeton area, area, then uh, you might want to you might want to contact Centurion with the idea of becoming a volunteer. Right now, we've had we've had, we have, we have twenty volunteers from all walks of life. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So there are a lot of different ways that you can support not only Centurion but um, those reform-minded uh, people who want to do who want to make change. Awesome. You're a delight. We salute you. We salute your work and your ministry, Jim. This is just a gift. Centurion's a gift. And I'll, I'll say personally that I don't really know a more worthy cause to support in helping people and in saving people's lives. And we're just really, Princeton Seminary's proud of you. And, you know, I just find the work so compelling. I hope people read the book. I hope people... Get to know what you're doing and yeah. what your amazing staff is doing. And we just salute you and your ministry and your amazing, fascinating life. Well, you know, thank you, Sue. And I, I appreciate that very much. There would be no Centurion Ministries were it not for Princeton Theological Seminary. You've been listening to The Distillery. Interviews are conducted by me, Dale Rounds. And me, Sushama Austin Connor. And I'm Sherry Osting. I'm Amar Peterman, and I am in charge of production. Like what you're hearing? Subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. The Distillery is a production of Princeton Theological Seminary's Office of Continuing Education. You can find out more at thedistillery.ptsem.edu. Thanks for listening.